Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Dr. Sam Shepard. He is a senior lecturer in exercise and sports nutrition at Liverpool John Moores University, and we talk all about uncovering the mechanisms behind the Currens supplement. So Sam is a lead researcher in that field, and while I have spoken a couple of times to Fleur Cushman, who is the director of Health Currency Limited, which is the company behind the current supplement, I really wanted to talk to those who are at the coalface, who are in the lab, analyzing the data and seeing those real results. So Sam and I spoke about both performance and health applications of the supplement, the mechanisms behind it, and how Sam sees the potential for athletes and general population alike. And what I found really interesting with this discussion is just how, you know, Sam really came at it with a skeptical science mind, which is, as sort of real scientists would tell you how you should always approach a topic and now that he's done a ton of research in the area and he's also witnessed you know results being replicated in other labs he's really excited for the future work to be conducted to understand further how the supplement can help and that is of course both um, for athletes and the general population now you will see as we sort of come into the conversation that sam and i were just sort of already talking and I, we just sort of left that little bit in in addition to the currens supplement research, Sam and I also talk about his work with a wider research group, all about the concept of fueling for the work required and how research looking at fueling the athlete has changed what we know in that space over time. So it is a wide reaching conversation and I think you're really going to enjoy it regardless of whether or not you're an athlete. So Dr. Sam Shepard, Senior Lecturer in Sport and Exercise Nutrition, is an academic staff member with teaching duties at Liverpool John Moore University. Sam's research aims to develop exercise and or nutritional strategies to improve cardiometabolic health and insulin sensitivity in at-risk populations, such as those with metabolic syndrome, type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and just that natural process of aging. But he also is interested in maximizing the metabolic adaptations to acute and chronic exercise training. Contributing to achieving these aims is a large body of work that focuses on understanding the molecular regulation of skeletal muscle lipid metabolism. Sam is also an expert in the use of immunofluorescence microscopy and transmission electronic microscopy methods which are integral to previous and ongoing research studies. And Sam and I actually talk about this, but not in a very, don't worry, geeky, nerdy way that you have to particularly understand, but I was super interested in that because it involves mitochondria, and that's a real buzzword right now. What I would also say is that Currens have come to the party for this podcast and for first time purchases, you have the opportunity to get yourself started with 25% off that initial purchase of the Currens supplement. And that is using the code Mickey, that's my name, pretty easy, right? And the link is over on the show notes or go direct to their website, www.currens.co.nz. 
And before we crack on into the interview, I'd just like to remind you that the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there in amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts, so more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show. All right, team, please enjoy this conversation that I have with Dr. Sam Shepard. or something, or and it begins getting light, or at least where we were, like 4.30, like super early. Yeah, it's, it's, it's lovely at the moment. I mean, like this morning, I was out, you know, going doing laps of the park on the bike. Uh, it's sort of like half five in the morning, It's and it's just nice and quiet, but lovely weather. Um, nice. Yeah, it's, it's lovely at the moment. While it lasts, anyway, at least this weather, while it lasts. Oh, 100%, right? And um, Sam, are you like an athlete yourself? Uh, yeah, so I do um, triathlon, um, Ironman mainly. Um, the, long, the long stuff interests me the most for many reasons um yeah so that's that's typically where where i'm at really um, yeah cool i did ironman lanzarote uh yeah two three weeks what was it three weeks ago four weeks ago now um was the last one so so yeah um we were pretty lucky actually with the weather i don't have you been to lanzarote or no you, not yet no well i mean canary the canary Islands. so they're typically windy yeah um and i've been there a few times and done training camps and um yeah on race day i mean it was wasn't too windy we you know it was it was breezy let's say which is acceptable for, for lanzarote and the temperature was sort of sort of early 20s mid 20s by the end of the day uh, or you know the afternoon when you're running so um yeah we were pretty lucky really it was a it was a quick day i think the course record was broken actually by the pro oh um, amazing won it yeah so um uh although sam laidlow was was winning at one point and he pulled up yeah gi issues or something but yeah so that's my uh that's my bag really iron man um yeah yeah like i say it's an application of knowledge isn't it and that sort of idea i was going to ask you Um, that actually because of course you've done a heap of work in um the sort of carbohydrate fuel fuel utilization space as well have you sort of like taken those principles and and applied them to yourself yeah so I, i suppose a lot of that work, um, and I know you wanted to talk about it, which I'm sort of happy to, but yeah. I, I was sort of on the, on the periphery, at least in terms of study design and things. Um, James and Sam led that work and Mark Kearis more recently um, and Kelly uh, Hammond. But uh, yeah, so I was kind of like a supporting role, but I've um, got involved in, in probably in a little bit more in the last few years with James and doing a bit more of that work. But yeah, it certainly helps to, um, yeah, you take those principles a lot and um, and apply them to yourselves. I mean... We also kind of had a, as everyone did during COVID, you sort of go, oh God, what's going on with my life and things like this. And then me and a, a girl I work with, um, we set up a, like a nutrition consultancy business, which um, is, is nice because that allows the sort of application um, of the, that knowledge, which was, I think sometimes, I don't know, in, in academia, you, you do the studies, but you never really see the end user. And certainly trying to do some consultancy work as I have the last three years now it's it's a nice way to 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 use that knowledge and apply it and actually see the results of it yeah and um, rather than do a study and hope it works in you know in the real world for some people who you're never ever going to meet um so it's yeah it's quite nice to to be able to do that as well as the kind of academic stuff I agree and um I spoke to a colleague of yours um Brendan Egan 
he was saying the same thing is that you know he he works in the sort of exercise aging ketone type space uh and he and but also on the side of that he was also a consultant and so he could yeah. he saw sort of from what the the research of the literature was saying about exogenous ketones getting these quite different reports from the people that he was he was talking to um which is you know super interesting mm. i mean straight away the carbohydrate sort of periodization fuel for the work required it i certainly set out initially with oh this will work for everyone and no it's it's very it's so individual and also you know work with a lot of sort of age group athletes and it's how you um bring it into their daily you know their daily lives when they've got work and other family stresses and things like that it's some some sometimes it's not possible for some it is and yeah they see potentially see the benefits of it yeah um but it's yes yeah, very individual whereas you, you read a paper and you think oh that'll work in everyone and job done i know um, do you <laughs> so find not- sam as well that is, is there a difference for you with regards to working with your elite um athletes versus the age grouper like because in my experience the elites seem to be able to handle more carbohydrate go super hard have less of those gi issues and then when you are working with someone who who is as not as serious maybe but you know but they're very serious about their sport but um it's just a different play it feels like a different playing field when it comes to that nutrition piece yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, we we work with a lot of age group athletes where you say to them, oh, how many, you know, how much? Oh, there was a classic example this week, actually. Yeah. Um, I've started working that's all right. You need to fuel that sort of 90 to 100 grams of carbs per hour for this ride. You know, three or four hour ride he was doing at the weekend in a sort of prep session. And he was like, came back. He's like, I've had one pack of shit, sh- uh, cliff shot blocks per hour. Is that about right? And you're like, <laughs> no yeah like, what, <laughs> yeah what have you done previously and he's like well i used to do that in 70.3 but i really used to struggle on the run and you're like well yeah you're fueling about 50 grams of carbs an hour i'm not surprised you like yes. actually dying on the run yeah um so it, it's more that and then the, the the top end guys tend to know that and have been working at that and it's just tweaks here and there really for those for those people yeah um or at least in triathlon that seems to be the case anyway i think uh, most people are quite aware of the the guidelines, I suppose, and then it's just figuring that out relative to the races that they're doing, and you know how how they're going to carry it, for example, and things like that, and around those sorts of challenges uh, is the main sort of thing for those guys. But they can certainly tolerate more, and they're also happier to do it in the training. Whereas I think the age groupers are a bit like, yeah, well, firstly, it's the cost of a lot of this sort of stuff, which is one issue. Um, but also they, a lot of them come with the idea that, oh, I want to lose a bit of weight. And you're like, okay, but if you feel you're training appropriately, then you will because you're not going to overeat later in the day or something like that. Um, so I think that that's the main challenge for those for those guys. Yeah, yeah. And um, Sam, how did Lanzarote go? Uh, yeah, good. Um, uh, what was our 10th overall? So, yeah. Oh, good job. Yeah. Group, yeah. So, um, <laughs> It's crazy the strength of the age group fields in general, though. I mean, I, yeah, what was I like fifth in my age group, but yeah, tenth overall. But I think we worked out the top ten would have finished top fifteen. You know, within the top fifteen in the pro race, it's just like the, it's just crazy the the, the standard. And you think, you know, maybe you train like fifteen, sixteen hours a week. And you think, how can I possibly do any more? Or yes, what you know, what kind of <laughs> How how do you move this on in terms of those results? But you you just have to accept that there's a lot of people who are probably working part time and 
and training the rest of the time. Um, particularly in triathlon, I think it's you know it's sort of affluent sport, isn't it? In terms of finance, you get a lot of people, particularly older people actually, who've retired, maybe retired early, and they're just they're just training like twenty five yeah. hours a week or something, and you're like. Well, you can't can't compete with that. So no, and you know, a lot of my clients have sort of at that um, like mid thirties, late thirties, maybe early forties. They've got a family. They've sort of built, the, established themselves within their career, and now they're like, I just want another challenge. And they've got the resources behind them, and the and and in some instances, that flexibility of time to be able to spend those hours. You know, really killing it actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. Um... Yeah, it's it's crazy. You just I, you can get really um, sort of uh, downbeat by it. I think sometimes if you you know you think I'm putting all this effort in and I'm just not really seeing the result. But you you know you've got to remember it's a hobby at the end of the day as well. I'm doing it to you know for fun. Yeah. So I always have to remind myself when it's going go you know when it's tough in races. You think actually I've chosen to do this. So, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> when you're deep into a marathon, you um, yeah. You're still questioning yourself, but you're trying to tell yourself that. <laughs> yeah, you just have to bring the Dave Goggins, Sam. Yeah, yeah, and then you're like, sweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, Sam, can we? Um, uh, can you give us a bit of your background? So, how did you get yeah. involved in sports nutrition and and your your um yeah your sort of interests in this sort of research space? Yeah. So I suppose. Oh God, I, I probably thought I thought about this a little bit and. I thought about this a little bit in the last few years, actually, when we've been setting up Total Endurance Nutrition, because I thought, actually, I look back and I, when I was at school, I really wanted to get into sports nutrition. And I remember when I um, finished GCSEs and we, we had a, like in a school assembly and they said, oh, what, you know, what do you want to do? And we kind of went round and I was like, oh, I want to be a nutritionist. Um, and I really like PE, so you sort of, you know, that's the thing that you want to do. And it's sort of, yeah, weirdly, in the last few years, it's become true, um, which is quite nice. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, the usual undergraduate degree in sports, sport and exercise science, I went to, um, so I did that at University of Birmingham, did a master's at Aberdeen, which was more uh, human nutrition and metabolism, which I think was was great because it it wasn't so specific to sports nutrition, so it gave me a good overview of nutrition but also from a health perspective largely so that was at the Rowett Research Institute up in uh, Aberdeen um, and then I went back to the University of Birmingham uh, to do a PhD with um, Anton Wagmakers um, and that was focusing on really exercise training and particularly high intensity interval training which was quite a, I suppose a hot topic at that time and we were interested in how that could be used to improve insulin sensitivity and, and reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes in sort of um, ultimately in overweight or obese individuals and I was coming at it from um, more of how can we or what effect is high intensity interval training having on substrate metabolism so I've got a probably my main focus is on lipid metabolism fat metabolism um, essentially and so you know the, the relationship between fat metabolism and health and insulin sensitivity in particular was was where I was at and so yeah I did that did my PhD and then uh, a kind of postdoc for about a year um, which was trying to take high intensity interval training a bit more mainstream let's say so we you know we it works in the lab but we want to see how it works in a more real world setting um, which we we kind of did a nice study with about 90 people um doing a high intensity interval training program over a sort of a yeah it took about 12 months to do that and then 
after that, moved to Liverpool John Moores University uh, in 2012 to take up a, a lecturing role there. And then, um, yeah, I've just continued, I suppose, continued that sort of high intensity interval training related work and, and health in the first instance. And then as I've started working with people like James Morton and, uh, and Graham Close um, at Liverpool John Moores University, sort of gone down a little bit more of a nutrition pathway. But ultimately, I think, you know, if I describe my research, I'm interested in substrate metabolism, so fat and carbohydrate metabolism, and how we can probably manipulate, well, firstly, understand the mechanisms of that, um, but also how we can manipulate that to, you know, either improve health or maybe enhance the adaptation to training and therefore improve performance, essentially. So, yeah, that's that's kind of me in a nutshell. Yeah. And um, Sam, what was sort of the major outcomes of your earlier research, which you're obviously you're sort of like um, you've progressed that um, over the last 10 years, but with your PhD and your and particularly your postdoc in that real world setting? Yeah, so it was at a time I remember we we had a um, we had a, a sort of seminar when I was starting my PhD, in fact, from Martin Gabala, who was who's of course at McMaster, and he led a lot of that research in high intensity interval training at the time um, with Kirsten Burgermaster, and we we were really interested in how that could be adopted for a health from a health perspective because of the, the sort of time efficient nature of that type of training. Um, and so I worked with uh, one of my colleagues who's also at Liverpool John Moores University now, Matt Cox, and he was interested in the kind of um, improvements in sort of cardiovascular related outcomes, so mm-hmm. endothelial function and things like that. Uh, I was more interested in how high intensity interval training would drive adaptations in muscle related to substrate metabolism. Um, and ultimately we you know we showed that it it could improve fat oxidation to a similar or to a similar extent and particularly the use of the fat that's in the muscle so the intramuscular triglycerides to the same extent as more traditional endurance training so that was quite nice uh quite unexpected in many ways um and that meant that well or the theory was that if you're increasing the capacity to use the fat within the muscle that would potentially lead to an improvement in insulin sensitivity because we know that if you accumulate fat in muscle, particularly if you're sedentary, you don't do much exercise, and that can be quite harmful to to, to metabolic health, essentially. Um, so that's yeah. So we we kind of prove that. Let's say in, in in sort of lean sedentary individuals in the in the first instance, and we repeated that in a in an obese cohort, um, and that was my PhD work. And then we said right. It works in the lab. Ultimately, the next step is to take this out into the, let's say, the real world. So we set up a, um, basically a similar to a spin class in many ways. That we and we we use the spin bikes. In fact, at the leisure centre that was uh, on site at the University of Birmingham, and um, basically we had one group doing endurance type training in, on the spin bikes, and then another group doing high intensity interval tra- training. And again, we just looked at some very basic sort of uh, cardio metabolic outcomes there. So just insulin sensitivity, changes in VO2 max and things like that, really. And again, showed that you could get similar benefits uh, in terms of those cardio metabolic outcomes as, as you did with the sort of more typical endurance training. But the nice thing was that more, you know, when we looked at some of the um, psychological aspects, let's say, and motivation, I didn't lead that because that's not my expertise. Yeah, so yeah. you collaborate with someone else. But we were, you know, we we saw that um, you you kind of you're more motivated to do that type of exercise. People engage more with it; they adhere more to it. So, 
Um, that was quite a nice outcome, really. Um, to, to, you know, pro- potentially progress that work um, when I moved to Liverpool, John Moores. Yeah, and is it because it's shorter that people are more um, likely to adhere to it? Like, what did a hit session sort of look like compared to, say, your standard endurance? Yeah. So the in the lab, they are very, I would call them extreme in many ways. That you're doing, you know, it's the the Wingate type. You know, thirty seconds of all that effort. Four, four, four and a half minutes rest and repeat that several times. And when we took that, um, we kind of softened that a little bit as we took it into the the real world, if we like, um, where it might be sort of a minute, minute on, minute off style of high intensity interval training. And it was it's all very self-selected, of course, in terms of effort. And you were just asking people to raise their heart rate, heart rate to to maybe you know eighty to ninety percent of their sort of max and or working on, you know, how out of breath do you feel? So you're trying to make it a bit more um, uh, in terms of a feeling, I would say. Um, and that's what we've tried to do in the real world. Um, and, you know, there's my, my colleague, Matt Cox, he's he's done a lot more work in more recent years on how that can be applied in um, more clinical settings. So we actually did some work in type 1 diabetes patients when we first moved to Liverpool John Moores University, and that, that was quite nice. Um, showing that the high-intensity high interval training could kind of um, get rid of the hypoglycemic um, effects of more moderate-intensity exercise. And that's why a lot of people who are type 1 diabetic might not like exercising because, you know, if you just walk at a moderate pace or run at a moderate pace, then you get a decline in your blood glucose, essentially, in those people. And whereas the high-intensity interval training, you know, you stimulate glucose production by the liver because you're getting greater increases in adrenaline and and then you you sort of in a safer zone from a, a glycemia perspective, um, but he's also taken that on now and doing some work in uh, or a number of different clinical populations, um, like even in some sort of more pediatric uh, sort of stuff as well. Um, but yeah, it was uh, yeah an interesting time, let's say. Yeah. But the yeah, I, I suppose the the main the main reason people pre- tend to prefer that is that it's over quite quickly yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. and a little bit more enjoyable yeah. than the the mon- monotony, I suppose, um, of the, the more, sort of more moderate intensity exercise, which is quite amusing because I, I quite like the monotonous stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I That's the thing, right? I'm, I'm an endurance athlete as well, and that, it's that sort of long and steady, like that really sort of hits a sweet spot for me but I do and also like I'm thinking as you're talking about that sort of harder effort it is hard at the time but you do like you do just feel like a little bit like you get a bit of a buzz and a bit invigorated when you do do it too I suppose absolutely yeah absolutely I mean yeah we still can't get away with just just plodding around can we (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately yeah so Sam it's interesting your you know obviously your interest in that insulin sensitivity piece because of course you've done a lot of work with the New Zealand black current supplement currents and a lot of um or as I understand it there is research that sort of aligns with your initial sort of research space um but that like in terms of the health benefits of taking a supplement like that yeah so I suppose that was one of the reasons we were well one of probably two reasons why we were initially interested in this supplement so I should say um first of all that the the reason I kind of got into or my interest in currents arose was um through Mark Willems who is based at University of Ch- Chichester and he 
Uh, he's led a lot of this work. You know, he's he's done much more work on this than than me, to be honest. Um, but he he actually approached us. He he'd done a study with uh, Matthew Cook, uh, who was his PhD student at the time, and and they showed that um, you could improve sort of fat oxidation, fat burning capacity, in in sort of layman's terms, um, with you know short term supplementation with with the the New Zealand blackcurrant extract um, supplement. Um, and so he, yeah, he approached us because they'd done this work in uh, healthy males and, and showed you could increase it. And they were saying, well, you know, what about females? And I think they were struggling to recruit females in Chichester. Um, and I was semi-confident we could recruit some in <laughs> Liverpool. So I sort of on that challenge, let's say. Um, and, and so we, yeah, we did this, we did this study um, up at LJMU, basically replicating one of the studies that Matt Cook had done in males and, and just were, were also interested if the effect um, continued into, into females as well. Um, so that was kind of one aspect. And then from that, we've developed this in, you know, and you start reading the papers in this area and you go, well, okay, so there might be some potential um, benefits to insulin sensitivity here as well. And there might be some sort of more health. Well, I suppose the fat metabolism is health as well, but also, you know, uh, sort of more metabolic health related um, effects that we that we might be able to see with this uh, with this blackcurrant extract as well yeah and can we like Sam I've had um Fleur on the show a couple of times actually which is brilliant because she's obviously is um sort of co-founder of Car and she's you know very um uh not knowledgeable about the mechanisms with which it works can you remind us of some of the mechanisms which would make Curran's this ergogenic aid yeah so I think for me, in terms of its ergogenicity, uh, I think one of the things to, to to say straight away is that, let's be clear that, you know, it's essentially a polyphenolic compound yeah. and it's found in, you know, fruit and vegetables essentially, and as all polyphenolic compounds pretty much are. And so if you have a higher intake of fruit and vegetables, then there's definitely a, you know, that's great for health, let's say. And we know that full well. Um, the New Zealand blackcurrant extract is quite interesting because it's, um, well, we've got polyphenols kind of at one level and then that, that splits off and you've got flavonoids and it's a flavonoid subclass. Um, so you've also got other flavonoids like um, catechins, for example, that you find in green tea or something like that. What you, in terms of its sort of ergogenic effect, it largely seems to stem from its sort of anti-inflammatory or antioxidant sort of capacity of the, the blackcurrants themselves. That's, yeah, that's part of the mechanism. And when we kind of look in the literature and there's um, sort of the, at the cell, cell work where there's been a lot of efforts to try and understand the, the mechanisms by which anthocyanins themselves might work and specific anthocyanins um in those cases it, you know the the raw product has been applied to cells and there you know we see things like oh an increase in glucose transporter expression so we think oh it might be able to support glucose uptake into cells or one of the other things that we see is it increases the expression of um, endothelial nitric oxide uh, oxide synthase and so that's important for the production of nitric oxide so we also think it might be important in regulating blood flow, and that might be one of the mechanisms. But 
I don't really think we know the precise mechanisms by which the the extract itself will work. We we have an idea from some of the cell work, and I guess this is yeah what we're trying to do at Liverpool John Moore's University now and and have been for the last few years is look at yeah what are the benefits, but ultimately answer why those we see some of those benefits as well. Yeah, because I guess when you're doing like a petri dish type study you're looking at cells in isolation from the entire like organism if you like and so and things yeah. don't generally work in isolation is that would that be how you sort of see it yeah i mean so there's there's that one aspect of it but one of the things we we well i suppose anthocyanins themselves are fairly or their bioavailability is fairly low so when you ingest anthocyanins something like 12 to 15% is what you see in the circulation and they peak after like one or two hours and then they're out again pretty quickly so if you're thinking about the ergogenic effect of that or potential it's quite short-lived um but we still see some benefits you know um to fat metabolism or insulin sensitivity or recovery from exercise or whatever it is and so what we think is happening is that the anthocyanins are metabolized themselves in in the body and you can measure those metabolites in the in the blood plasma or serum, and they remain sort of elevated at, uh, for sort of twenty four to forty eight hours. So it's, and again, what we believe is that it's these metabolites that are having the sort of purported beneficial effects um, within the within the you know within the body itself. So going back to the the kind of cell work that people have done previously. Um, it's been great because it suggests that these anthocyanins might have, you know, benefits and, and gives you an idea in terms of the mechanisms by which they may work. What we're starting to do at Liverpool John Moores University, so I've just got a, a PhD student starting on this, is basically rather than applying the raw product to a cell in a dish, like we say, we're going to provide people with the, the extract, take blood, for sort of six hours afterwards periodically and then separate the serum and then apply that serum to the cells so you're getting the metabolites um you know you're exposing cells to the metabolites and then you can look at those mechanisms but actually a little bit more closely aligned to what the tissue in vivo would actually see yeah um uh, and be exposed to so that's the that's the idea of some of the work that we're we're just actually started in the last few months at, at liverpool nice and sam what was the outcome of your female specific study with fat oxidation yeah so i was i'll be honest i was a bit skeptical when we first did it um which is nice uh, and i think that's probably the best way to be a lot of the time um and so we, yeah, we as I said, we we sort of spoke to Mark about it, and we're like, right, we'll go for it. Um, what we saw was we saw an increase uh, or an improvement in fat oxidation, essentially, in the females. Um, so they did two hours of prolonged exercise, just moderate intensity exercise, or sixty five percent of VO two max, and we measured um, whole body rates of fat oxidation for uh, during that two hour period, and they did it with you know following a placebo. Um, supplementation period of seven days or a, or a blackcurrant extract supplementation period of seven days and it was the yeah i think uh, about a 27 percent increase in fat oxidation um following the the black or 
uh, comparing the black current to the placebo condition, which was, yeah, I was quite surprised to, yeah. to see, to yeah. be honest. Is it, like, is it clinically meaningful? I think this is where it becomes tricky. Um, I suppose what, we, what I was interested in initially is that you, that was, oh, I think, almost exactly the same as one of the studies from Matt Cook where they showed an increase in fat oxidation. I think one of them also reported a 27% increase. I know there was another one that I think was like a 22 or 23% increase as well. So but we're getting, you know, in the realms of, you know, we're repeating this in different labs and, and seeing the same sort of thing, which is nice. Um, if I compare that to um, some, you know, exercise training studies, um it's difficult. You can cherry pick a little bit here, but I don't know. If I think back to my PhD and, and some of the ones that I um, looked at in more detail, some of the sort of highly cited ones, three months of sort of low intensity, moderate exercise in sedentary individuals, and that increased fat oxidation by about 35%. So it's not too far away from that. Um, so I think it is, it's meaningful in that regard um in that we're able to elicit similar or surprisingly i suppose elicit similar increases in whole body rates of fat oxidation compared to some sort of more you know typical training studies that we might do endurance training studies which is yeah pretty i think pretty interesting yeah um it, i think it's also important to look and that's the relative change of course that we're interested in there but i think it's also important to consider the absolute change um and that's fairly moderate, I would say. Um, but that being said, and one of the things that we're, I suppose we, we want to do now is like, how meaningful is that change? Uh, and, and to go back to your original question, and I think for me, it's like, if we are improving our ability to burn fat, then hopefully from a performance perspective, we're suppressing or sorry, um, reducing glycogen utilization yeah uh, carbohydrate oxidation and therefore if we can do that and that small or you know moderate increase in fat oxidation is sparing glycogen then ultimately we should you know be able to improve performance and that's that's actually one of the studies where we're kind of just finalizing the results for at the moment um so uh, again, that was what I, the PhD student who's just started now with us, Lawrence. That was his uh, sort of master's project. Um, we did that in males rather than females, I should say. We, we you know, very controlled, a lot of um, dietary control to ensure we started with the same levels of muscle glycogen. We did depletions before and things like that to to really normalise glycogen. Um, again, we saw I think this time a twenty four percent increase in whole body fat oxidation. So again, you know, within what we've seen before. Um, and one of the things we're doing at the moment is doing the glycogen analysis because after the two hours of prolonged exercise in this latest study, we just did an exercise capacity test. So basically you cycle for as long as you can at 150% of lactate threshold. Um, so it's fairly short, but it's ultimately dependent on muscle glycogen levels. And I think it was something like of the, I want to say, 11 participants, I think nine of them improved their performance with the currents. Um, so I can't remember the exact numbers in terms of what that yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, that suggests that, or to me at least, that there might be some sparing effect on, on glycogen there. But, yeah, well, I suppose I, <laughs> all I can say is watch this space because we're kind of finalising that uh, analysis at the moment. 
Um, but I think that you know potentially, in terms of performance, could be could be one of the benefits for for the current uh, supplement. Yeah, and same with these. In um, it sounded like the female cohort was an untrained cohort. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So um, yeah, probably we we had a bit of a I'm trying to think now. We had a bit of a range. Um, there were some cyclists in there, but then some people who were let's call them uh i wouldn't say sedentary like more physically active they were still exercising and they were accustomed to endurance exercise but they, they weren't you know serious cyclists let's say and um, so a bit of a range in that in that respect um i think it's worth saying that certainly mark willems at chichester has over the last few years has done um some of this work in um yeah certainly sedentary individuals males and females and again they they show that there's improvements in fat metabolism during walking in those yes, in those people I've seen those so studies. even you know across that sort of spectrum of physical activity we're seeing similar um benefits to to fat metabolism at least yeah and do we think then sam um if i'm thinking about your sort of triathlete or ultra runner who is well trained is it likely are we thinking that it would still be an additive effect or do we just not know that yet or what are your sort of what's your gut feel on that yeah so i I don't think we really know that yet um again i'll refer to one of the papers recently from mark willem so they did a case study and they took an ultra runner um and they they did basically seven days of current supplementation and they they looked at substrate use before and after that period so no placebo condition in this case and this was an N of one, of course, as it's a case study, but they did see improvements in fat metabolism um, just with the, the seven days of, of current. So I think there's more work to be done in that space for sure. Uh, and whether those benefits are realized to the same extent, um, if at all, in the in the sort of uh, yeah h- higher end athletes, let's say, uh, compared to you sort of moderately trained um, people that you yeah, that you're doing this work in. Yeah, and I mean, anecdotally, I know a lot of people take it and a lot of people love it as well, and I take it um, also. Sam, what dose did, did the was used in the studies? Like what is that sort of suggested um, dose? Yeah, so, we've, so the, the studies we've done, um, again, is a lot based on what Mark's done, and we, we did uh, 600 milligrams, which is basically 210 milligrams of anthocyanins. Um, that was daily. Um, again, another study from Mark, uh, led by Matt Cook. They did a dose response study, uh, so they compared placebo to three hundred, six hundred, or nine hundred milligram capsules. Uh, I should say that that's about just over a hundred, just over two hundred, and just over three hundred milligrams of anthocyanins, um, which is you know the active bit. And um, they didn't see a an increase from six to nine hundred. Uh, so, but so six hundred milligrams is is typically what, um, at least for fat metabolism, is the outcome uh, is what what we sort of aim at based on that work. Yeah, and is there utility, Sam, in taking repeated doses of the current supplement throughout a like a really long session? That's something that I think we need to look at in a little bit more detail. So I've I've talked to Fleur about this a little bit um, in the past. Uh, because we 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 actually supported a guy last year doing a Decker, for example, um, and we we got him to take the because he was out there, you know, fourteen fifteen hours every day, 
Um, and we made sure that he was taking that period periodically through the day. Um, sort of every, I think it was every six hours in the end we were looking at just to try and maintain the, yeah, maintain the, the metabolites uh, to a greater extent. Um, I think one of the things that we, if we think that the metabolites are having this beneficial effect, my assumption would be that exercise would increase the turnover of those metabolites. So supplementing more regularly is probably appropriate in those longer sessions. So I'm thinking, you know, some of the ultra endurance events where they're going, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours plus that we might need to start and start to supplement more than, you know, more than once essentially. But I think there's more work to be done in that space, or at least um, I'm not aware of studies that have really done that. Probably anecdotal evidence and, and Fleur shares some of that with me that, <laughs> um, that that's what we should be doing. Uh, but it's like everything with this, isn't it? The science normally catches up and answers the yes. question as to why people are doing these things in the first place. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. And am I right in thinking there is a recovery element to black currents that has also been studied? for sort of higher yeah. performance athletes um from a higher performance uh, perspective yeah so there's a f- there's a f- sort of few things um i think a lot of the, again this is based on anecdotal data that yeah. um people who've been taking it um sort of suggest so um i know there's a lot of ultra runners take it or like mountain um people doing mountain racing mountain bike racing um certainly a, you know triathlon things like that where there's a you're putting a significant strain on the body essentially for a prolonged period of time and and there's some sort of anecdotal reports that the currents helps to you know would help you with recovery there one of the more um sort of yeah i suppose the research studies to to kind of look at that um was led by uh, julie hunt and ralph mander so they're at surrey university in the in the uk um and they actually did a very basic study because we wanted to, I suppose they wanted to know essentially whether there really was this benefit to recovery. Um, so one of the experimental models that you can do to test that is uh, eccentric loading of um, of a muscle and, and make it really localized. So they did, so they did I, think they were, I think they were bicep curls or it might have even been forearm exercise. I can't remember off the top of my head now. Um, but very localized damage that they were inducing with this um, eccentric exercise loading. And they showed that you could, or with the current supplement, then you would um, improve uh, recovery. So sort of there was some subjective measures in there. So, you know, how sore on a a visual analog scale, but also um, some markers of of recovery as well there. So um, they measured creatine kinase. And we can probably argue there's some issues with creatine kinase, but the the currents seem to allow uh, sort of or keep creating kinase um circulating creating kinase concentrations almost uh, sort of a baseline level um you got significant rises when you weren't taking it so that's i think something that needs to be followed up uh, in other sort of recovery based uh, studies um moving forward but i think any probably any sort of exercise where you are inducing sort of yeah or using eccentric loading uh, I'm thinking things like even like fell running, you know, downhill running, if there's that aspect to it, um, even like cross country, uh, sorry, not cross, uh, just downhill skiing or yeah. something like that. Um, CrossFit, I think, is probably um, a big area as well. 
potentially. Um, I think there could be a, a real utilization of the of the currents there, as well as some of the you know based on at least based on the anecdotal evidence that um, we see from the ultra runners or the triathletes or people yeah. mountain biking and fell running already where they they sort of support that recovery aspect as well. Yeah, nice. I think I saw a study looking at the neutrophil function in rowers um, that was a, that sort of suggested that after some high intense rowing exercise, to be fair, the rowing machine, what else would it be if it's rowing? I mean, it's always going to be high intense and horrible and (laughs) something everyone wants to avoid, or at least I do want to avoid. Um, But I I believe there was that enhanced neutrophil sort of function. Um, I don't have the details in front of me though, which might, which may be a different mechanism or a, or a um, something else with regards to the immune system that might be helpful maybe. Yeah, so I, I, yeah, I suppose we always talk about recovery and we think about recovery of muscle function, but yeah. I think recovery covers many different aspects really, and and you you pick and choose what you want to study in that in that respect. So yeah, the the muscle function aspect is one, but also you know we we know that if you do very hard exercise and particularly over a long period, then you get this kind of drop in circulating neutrophils, and that's that's what's leading to that immunosuppression. Um, and I think it was a study from Roger Hurst in, in New Zealand at Plant and Food that you, you're referring to. And they they showed that, yeah, after that rowing exercise that you kind of maintained the, the neutrophils uh, levels in, in circulation, essentially. So in theory, you should be reducing your risk of any, um, or reducing your risk of picking up any sort of infections there. So, and I think that's an important aspect of recovery, but especially if we, you know, think of it in an applied perspective where you might have cyclists doing, you know, a week-long tour, um, something like that. Even as basic as taking a group of age group triathletes on a training camp 100%. and they're increasing their training volume, you know, everyone probably doubles their training volume for yes. that week um, and they and they come back absolutely obliterated um, <laughs> back into work. But you know, ultimately, they're at a greater risk of picking up something. And how many how many times do you see people you know go on a training camp and pick up an infection on the way home or something like that, uh, even from racing uh, as well. So I think there's there's definitely application, at least based on the work that Rogers done there in terms of maintaining neutrophil um, function and, and, and levels um, with the currents. Then there's definitely application from a recovery perspective there as well yeah Yeah. nice and of course Sam you know we're all athletes in some way shape or form aren't we so all of the performance benefits I always often think how is this going to be applied in that health setting and of course a lot of your earlier research and your continuing research is in is in that space as well so is it are they the same mechanisms at work that is uh that could potentially help improve um health outcomes as well um and I guess this is one of the questions that we're trying to answer. Yeah. Um, first of all, you, 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 I guess we we tried to say, well, does it improve insulin sensitivity? That was kind of the the first study that we took in that in that um, space um, at Liverpool John Moores University. Um, and I suppose that was ultimately based on the fact that yes, we see some antioxidant and anti-inflammatory um, sort of effects of the the, the New Zealand blackcurrant extract itself. And also some of the cell work that I talked about earlier, one of the outcomes that we've that we've seen in, in that sort of work is that it can increase that uh, nitric oxide synthase protein, 
uh, and that's important for improving blood flow. And if we improve blood flow and delivery of nutrients to tissues and particularly muscle, then that would improve, in theory, um, create a greater capacity to take up, you know, glucose into into the muscle and store it, and that would, you know, be be an improve. It ultimately improve um, glycemia and insulin sensitivity. So that was kind of the rationale for um doing that investigation so we we did um seven days of of currents um supplementation versus a placebo and this was in overweight and obese individuals so they inactive um we actually tried to recruit sort of like what we call office workers so people who were just sat in front of a desk for eight hours a day um for most of the time and then do very little when they when they leave as well um and what we showed that you could, um, or what we showed quite nicely, was that the current supplement improved whole body insulin sensitivity uh, just after seven days. So that was quite nice. One of the, uh, and, and that was assessed in the lab. So we, we do something called an oral glucose tolerance test. And again, it's sort of a clinical test, if you like, a very basic clinical test. You, you provide 75 grams of, of sugar, basically, or glucose, and um, and then after two hours of you take serial blood samples and, and you look at the, the glucose curve that is generated and, and you're looking to see how quickly that glucose is cleared from the blood um as a kind of marker of yeah glucose tolerance and insulin sensitivity um so that's nice and it's quite a controlled environment but what we also wanted to do is look at that outside of the lab and say well how does that affect you know if you if you had a high carbohydrate meal in the day hopefully that also shows that you get less of a glucose response or less of an increase in blood sugars and it's cleared a little bit more quickly as well in in kind of real life so in that study as well we we used continuous glucose monitoring systems um and we also showed that certainly in response to i think it was the breakfast and the lunch um on our kind of um experimental day although it was at home for those guys um they they improve those sort of postprandial responses to to those two meals. Um, we didn't see an increase at din- uh, an improvement at dinner, but I think the the carbohydrate um, content of the dinner meal wasn't particularly high, actually, as it turns out. So that was potentially one of the reasons. But it was nice to be able to see that it works, and you know we could show it worked in the lab, and it also worked when people went home and were just going about their daily business as well. So that was that was really positive. Yeah. Um, and I think from a from a mechanistic perspective, we weren't, you know, we're still not entirely sure on what is driving that, and that's what we're trying to kind of figure out figure out now. Really, um, what we did see was during the oral glucose tolerance test, because as well as measuring glucose, you also measure insulin, um, and so if you get less of an insulin response as well, that suggests that whilst you are feeding the same amount of glucose 75 grams there's less insulin required to actually deal with that so that suggests tissues where you're trying to trying to dispose of glucose into and that's mainly skeletal muscle then it and it's more sensitive to you know uh, any increase in insulin basically and and would drive that glucose into the muscle and out of the circulation so um that's yeah that's i guess what we're literally starting to kind of figure out now and we're taking um 
um, a kind of yeah, two-pronged attack, uh, let's say, at that. So we're trying to look at the mechanisms that are driving that using uh, what we call like conditioned serum. So basically um, blood that we've taken from some participants, uh, volunteers, should I say, um, after they've ingested the current supplement. And so we're getting increases in the anthocyanins and the metabolites, and that's what we're exposing the cells to. So then we look at some of the sort of uh, molecular outcomes that are potentially driving that improvement in um, glucose tolerance and insulin sensitivity. Um, but we're also starting a dose response study there as well. So trying to figure out what the optimal dose is. Um, and uh, yeah, again, doing that in overweight and sort of obese individuals. And we're actually trying to um, also looking uh, postmenopausal females, so with people who are sort of a bit more metabolically challenged, let's say, um, compared to yeah, younger, younger sort of overweight or obese individuals, that you sometimes don't always get that metabolic disorder showing its face quite yet. Yeah. Um, so that's where that's where we're going with that work. Yeah. That's awesome, Sam. So, and just a few questions. Um, one was the dosing. Did you do the sort of CGM monitoring? alongside the dosing so for that seven day period they were uh they were taking the current supplement or did they take the current supplement supplement prior to for seven days yeah so they took it prior to yeah and then it was actually on the eighth day that we we looked at the cgm um information uh yeah the cgm outcomes i think yeah looking forward if we re- if you repeat that sort of work it'd be interesting to to see how it yeah, look at it over that seven day period or however long we we supplement for and i suppose that's one of the things that we we ultimately need to figure out is all these studies are seven days yeah yeah <laughs> but you know what happens if you take it in the longer term yeah um you know whether that's a, for a performance outcome or whether it's for a health outcome that's that's certainly an area that needs further work yeah and then i wonder as well you talked about the metabolites being present in the bloodstream for about six hours so i wonder whether i I mean it doesn't sound like unless they took the supplement on the eighth day i was just thinking about the dinner meal and you explained very well why there wouldn't be such a response but i wonder if it would make a difference if there were as a double dose or something i'm not sure yeah, well, so the metabolites themselves will probably be in the circulation for about 24, maybe up to oh, 48 cool, hours. Oh, cool, cool, yes. Some work that um, guys at uh, another university in the UK have done. Um, that's typically what we see. So That's right. You were talking you about might, exercise for the six hours because yeah. we go through them a bit more maybe. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And and, and that's that's just my opinion on it. Yeah, There's yeah. no evidence to back it up, but everything turnover in the body is much faster when we exercise anyway. So we'd assume that that's the same for the metabolites. Um but yeah, so I think one of the things that we're trying to look at here is whether you get this acute effect occurring. Um and we saw we tried to do it in the, the study that I described what we were it was probably a bit messy in 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 um in reality because we tried to mimic um sort of a uh what we might think of more typical um feeding in maybe or a meal that overweight obese individuals do and we took quite an experimental approach to that so we we had like 50 grams of fat and 75 grams of sugar and it probably the the fat just completely interfered with the with the glucose in it and made it really messy so we didn't really see anything there but um one of the things we're going to try and do in this next study is go well is it just that you know just one dose of the currents is that having an impact on the 
the blood glucose responses or is it this build up over seven days or even longer if we you know we, we want to extend this out ultimately um is it that accumulation of the metabolites and do they accumulate over time that is then driving you know the improvements in insulin sensitivity or any of the other you know cardio metabolic outcomes that we might think uh, it might have an effect on as well yeah Nice. Um, Sam, before we leave Karen's, and I know, and I'm mindful of your time, are there any mitochondrial benefits from, because mitochondria is huge right now in terms of the sort of health science space? Yeah. So something that I've probably started thinking about in the last few months, um, because we've been quite lucky at Liverpool, John Moore's and got some nice new equipment to measure mitochondrial function. So immediately you think, well, what can we do with that? Um, and so, yeah, how can we play with that? Um, and yeah, there, I think there is some um, potential effects on mitochondrial function for for currents as well. Again, I think with our cell model that we're developing at the moment, that's one of the things that we'll be able to look at. And, and maybe we just measure some simple markers uh, of mitochondrial function in the first instance, something like a creatine, uh, sorry, a, a citrate synthase assay or something like that. Uh, or just changes in PGC1 alpha as the sort of master regulator of mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, and then ultimately look to see whether we're seeing changes in a in a functional measure of like mitochondrial function as well. Uh, and then if that's the case, well, let's take it into humans and take some muscle biopsies because that's our favorite thing to do. <laughs> and then see if we uh, <laughs> uh, see if we see if we see the same thing in, in vivo and and that'd be brilliant if we did. Yeah. Um and whether there's, you know, even things like an additive effect with exercise or or maybe it's more for people who don't do so much exercise. Can we enhance the effect of that exercise by by supplementing with currents alongside that? But these are all the uh, open questions for for the next few years. That sounds awesome, Sam. There's, there's, there's a lot going on. Do you take currents yourself? Of course, yes. <laughs> yeah. Of course, yeah, same, totally, yeah. Um, so, Sam, now just very brief, and, and this really will just be a bit of a wrap-up because I'm going full circle. Um, is there anything that, so obviously we know what you're excited about in that um, black current space, um, and whilst you are sort of part of a, a wider team in the carbohydrate fuel for the work required space, but is there anything exciting going on in that space that we should be aware of coming out in the next couple of years or...? Yeah, I think um yeah, so for me the I'm really interested in that carbohydrate and fat metabolism side of things because it's immediate application to athletes that you work with and you're going brilliant, like can we you know, what's gonna work and what's not essentially. Yes. And I think we've we've moved a little bit away from this or we, we understand that you you know, periodizing carbohydrate is the way to approach these things for a for a lot of people. Um and some of the work that James and and Mark Harris has led in the last few years, showing that it's not really the starting level of glycogen that's important; it's the finishing level of glycogen. So if you, you know, if your session is long or intense enough, and you go below this glycogen threshold of about three hundred millimoles, then you should see um, enhanced, at least, signaling responses to to exercise and whether they, you know, material, you know, transpire to become you know, ultimate and, and affect performance down the line. If you do that for weeks and weeks and months, then probably we don't quite know that yet. Um, they're very difficult studies to do, of course, in the, in that world. Um, so I think for me, for me, we're you know the application of the, the the carbohydrate periodization really comes down to knowing what the carbohydrate cost 
and the glycogen cost of typical sessions are. So yes. we've kind of done a little bit of work in that space. Um, again, Sam Impey led this work. Um, this was actually pre-COVID. Um, and it was quite nice because, again, we we tried to take some of the stuff from that we were doing in the lab and these very controlled environments to say, well, actually, what's the carbohydrate cost and, and glycogen cost of these sessions that we're, you know, we, when we do them in the real world? So we, um, we, we took a lot of biopsies. <laughs> Um, to look at this and we we did a big study where we had um males and females um and they did three different running sessions that were what we um couldn't at least understood from our links at the english institute of sport that they were sort of typical 10k run sessions that people might do into you know who were training for that distance um and so one was like a 10 mile run then there was an eight by 800 um sort of vo2 max session on the track and then a, a three by 10 sort of lt1 sort of uh session again we did that on the track as well so many many evenings were spent at the local track um watching people run and then taking muscle biopsies and we took biopsies from the like the quad but we also took them from the calf as well because we know that the the glycogen data is a little bit cleaner from running purely through the you know you get greater activation of the the calf uh, and the gastrocnemius in particular um and so we started to build a picture of how much carbohydrate was required for those sessions and of course if you know that then that informs how much carbohydrate you then need to feed or how much you can or what's the minimum you can kind of get away with if you like to to employ some of those periodization strategies so i think there's work still to be done in that area and starting to understand that um, but I think the other thing to understand, and, and again, this is goes back to the application, is understanding the effect of feeding carbohydrate during exercise, and is that going to influence any glycogen sparing? And again, we've we've kind of done a little bit of work in that area, and it doesn't appear to, um, at least at the level of of the muscle, um, and probably the sparing effect is at the level of um, the liver. So I think Mark Harris and James are just starting some work. Uh, on that actually at this this point in time where they're going to start looking at um, the effect of carbohydrate and feeding on and look at how that might spare liver glycogen using um, MRS um, MRI scanning essentially and to measure liver glycogen levels and so that'd be quite neat Um, but I think that has application for you know how we fuel sessions because and this was one of the issues when you when you first start doing this like you know low carbohydrate work it's impacting the quality of the session that you're doing so yes you're exercising with low levels of muscle glycogen but you can't ride for as long or you can't reach the same intensity which we we know is also important to drive the sort of um performance benefits that we that we want to you know um generate from the type of training and so if you feed carbohydrate um during those sessions what effect is that having on well muscle glycogen concentrations or liver glycogen concentrations and ultimately the adaptive response as well so i think there's yeah kind of work to kind of do in that area uh, and then probably one of the things that i'm most keen on is i always people joke because uh, it's using microscopes so i you know use um do a lot of microscopy work yeah i always think i proper science isn't it when you're when you're at school you're looking down the microscope is is science it is uh, and so really i've ended up doing that which is great but you end up spending a lot of time in dark rooms and um, which isn't so great yeah. <laughs> and but we we did we started doing some work using um electron microscopy and 
some of the yeah ultimately we're interested in looking at the compartmentalized glycogen use so the different in muscle you have different pools of glycogen and they probably play different roles in fatigue and and self singling and things like this and so it might be that yes on a kind of whole muscle level we don't spare glycogen with carbohydrate feeding but it might be that a specific pool of glycogen is being spared and that's something that we're we're just working on now so um some of the samples that we've collected from previous studies we're, we're starting to look at that using the electron microscopy so that'd be quite neat as well if we were able to answer that question yeah for sure it's so interesting that blood um that muscle glycogen sparing story so whenever we're having carbohydrate when we're training it's hitting the bloodstream and we're utilizing it as fuel but that's not slowing down the rate with which we are converting the glycogen into um uh, uh to be also used as fuel mm. yeah essentially it's it's a weird one i think it's like a funnel i always think of it like a funnel yeah. and it's interesting that you're kind of yeah you're putting your muscle glycogen and also your your blood glucose into that and they're both going down at the same rate because when i compare that to the lipid story where we know that you've kind of got your muscle lipid and and your your plasma fatty acids well actually if you pour more plasma fatty acids in it it stops and, and starts to suppress the 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 fat um that, that you're using in the muscle so i think that's it's it's yeah it's quite um almost paradoxical in some ways that that's what we're seeing um but yeah starting to understand why that is i think is probably um yeah certainly where that work's going to go and hopefully i can stay involved with a little bit of that as well yeah and sam finally the you know you you've got you're taking a lot of muscle biopsies to sort of figure out these uh the answers to these questions for the athletes that are that are in this study how then might just your general endurance athlete take that information to be applicable to them who probably are not going to get their uh league sort of like um i don't know chopped in or whatever <laughs> yeah um yeah they don't particularly like doing it to be honest um, <laughs> as you can imagine um but no so i think it's more about understanding for me if we feed someone a certain level of carbohydrate then we can make a good estimate on what level their muscle glycogen is going to be at and then if we know you know if we say that, uh, you know, someone goes for a 10 mile run and they, you know, on average from our study, you might say, well, they're burning X amount of carbs and you see that there's a reduction of, you know, X amount in terms of glycogen. Is that going below the threshold is probably an important question, but how much in general? Um, then you can start to think about how you either, how much glycogen you need to start that and we know that you can, or from the studies that Mark Harris has done more recently, you can really um, understand how much glycogen is used based on your kind of starting amount of glycogen as well and, and the type of exercise. So it, it, it's just all going to build a picture in that respect. So we, when we start to, you know, as nutritionists, we start to say, well, for this session, we need to have fed this much carbohydrate in the 24 hours before because we know that you're going to use X amount and that's going to lead to, you know, a certain level. And, and we also need to be looking ahead, of course, yeah, what's, yeah. what's the next session yeah. people are going to be doing. But um, I think that'll come in time as we start to really understand the, the sort of carbohydrate cost of, of those sessions uh, and, and build that into you know, how we support athletes um, with that. Nice. 
Sam, thank you. You have been a wealth of information in all of my um, the areas that I'm interested in. Can you just let the listener know how they can find out more about what's going on in your lab and, and the research that you're involved in? And of course, I will pop the link in the show notes as well. Yeah, so I'm not a big um, big social media fiend, <laughs> I've got to be honest. So Instagram and um, yeah, Twitter, I'm not not big on there, but um, a lot of the, yeah, probably a lot of stuff is coming from the, the PhD students, but typically, uh, yeah, all the information's on the kind of Liverpool John Moores University uh, webpage that is my webpage, so you a little bit more information about what's going on on there really is the main way to find out some. That's awesome. Sam, thanks so much for your time this evening. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks very much. Alrighty, so, I mean, what a geek out on loads of things that I'm super interested in, and I really hope that uh, you enjoyed that too. And do not forget your opportunity to get Currens for 25% off your first purchase with their original 30 capsules using my name Mickey and also I would remind you that uh, the legend that is Simon Cochran Ultraman uh, he mentioned them on this podcast and credited them for part of his recovery process so you know they are used by legends like Simon and me as well all right team so questions comments queries all the things you can catch me over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin You can catch me on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition or head to my website mickeywillardin.com and purchase one of my plans or book a one-on-one consult with me. All right, guys, you have a great week. Talk soon. Bye.